0: thinking, oh man, we're starting 2020 with the word Lamentation. But this morning is meant to bring hope to our hearts. We're going to be in Lamentations. If you are using a a black Bible that's provided for you, uh, we will be on page 688. Uh, So we really would like to have everybody looking on a Bible, whether that's a physical hard copy Bible or an electronic device. Uh, It's the scriptures that change lives. It's not uh, anything that one individual says. So we want to be looking at scripture. feels like it's been a while since I've been up here. Uh, Life has been a bit crazy. Um, But I do hope that you had a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. In fact, uh, we're going to get back into our series next week on 1 Peter. Uh, We finished kind of the first section of 1 Peter um, a little bit after Thanksgiving, and we are going to continue next week into that series, but I just want to take some time this morning to be able to talk with you about our perspective for the new year. Now, it is 2020, so... uh, If there's ever any hope, quote unquote, to not have to rely on hindsight 2020, this is the year, right? It is 2020. Anyway. (laughs) If I was to ask you, uh, as you enter this new year, how do you feel, um, I wonder what, what your answer would be. How do you feel moving into a new year? I've always thought it's, it's interesting when uh, individuals say, you know, a new year, a clean slate, and I don't necessarily know what, moving to the next day, how that really gives us a clean slate, as opposed to any of the other 364 days of the year, uh, but we're all carrying things with us from tw- December 31st, 2019 to January 1st, 2020, Right? How do you feel moving into this new year? Did 2019 did it leave you feeling excited? Did it leave you feeling happy? Did it leave you feeling sad? Did it leave you feeling weary? Did it leave you feeling optimistic? Did it leave you feeling frightened? In light of what this past year, or maybe it's even years, plural, has brought, what are you anticipating for 2020? I would say, uh, from firsthand personal experience, I would say, uh, Rachel and I would probably say, 2019 has been one of the most difficult years. I mean, great blessings. Uh, The Lord has been good. We have a new life in our family, all of those things. But with that, living in a broken world as broken individuals, it has brought a lot of difficulty. There's been a lot of stress. There's been a lot of hardship in 2019. And none of us can tell the future. And I think if we could tell the future, we'd probably not want to peer through that window very often for fear of what we would see in the future None of us can tell the future, but that automatically brings a sense of anxiety, a sense of dread. What does the future hold? And while none of us can truly look ahead to know the future, we can be assured of one thing. God will be faithful. Just as he was faithful yesterday, so he's going to be faithful today. As Christians, we can rest, we can rejoice in knowing that God's faithful. The unknowns of life for us as Christians are always wrapped in the knowns of who God is. So we can handle what is unknown to us because we know who God is. Knowing that God is faithful can bring a spirit of of worship to our hearts. In fact, we just sang this morning, the sun comes up, it's a new day dawning, it's time to sing your praise again. What is it that day after day after day should get a Christian up out of bed with a sense of purpose in his or her life? It is, it's not circumstances, it's not feelings, it is knowing who our God is. You know, maybe this morning you kind of are, are lacking in your sense of purpose as a Christian, your sense of purpose in life. Maybe it's because you don't know that well who your God is. And we're going to look at that this morning That amidst the uncertainties of life, we can be assured that God will be, mark it down, He will be unceasingly faithful. Absolutely faithful. And we find this in the Bible. God's Word is what gives us the assurance that we need. So many times we look for a sense of reality based on what we can experience, what we see around us, how life is going, how those around us are treating us, what our financial bank account says, uh, the things we possess, whatever it is, we look, for those, we look at those things for a sense of reality. But brothers and sisters, it's God's word that is to give us our sense of Reality. So let's look this morning. This is the first Sunday of 2020. Let's take some time this morning to look at what God's word says regarding hope. We know that we can hold to God's word. One of the reasons we can know Uh, that God's word is sufficient for us in our day and age, in our stage of life, in our trials, in our circumstances, is because God's word simply doesn't downplay or sugarcoat the uncertainty of our circumstances to make us feel better. Uh, You can go to the Christian bookstore, and and you you can buy books that will sugarcoat things. And, and make it sound like that, that, that your life is destined for happiness and greatness and all of these things if you simply believe, but yet then you read those books and it leaves you empty thinking, yeah, but you don't know my circumstance. Or you don't know the, the, our, our brothers and sisters across the globe that, that are suffering all sorts of hardship and are being true to Christ. What you're saying doesn't quite line up with reality. Reality. Well, when you go to the Bible, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat things. You see, God's Word highlights the faithfulness of God amidst the hardships of life. The Bible highlights the faithfulness of God and and points our eyes to the unshakable foundation that we have in Him, despite all of the brokenness in this world despite the broken relationships that we are working through, despite all of the clutter and chaos of life, in the midst of all of that, the shining beacon of God himself shines so much brighter. And the reason we're looking at Lamentations this morning is because I can think of no greater example than to look at this book to emphasize to us that it does not matter what your life looks like. God is there. He's faithful. He will provide hope. Let me just give you a little bit of a background to the book of Lamentations. This is a book of mourning. In fact, the very title itself, Lamentations, what is a lament? Lament. It is, it, is, uh, it is a cry. It is a, a, a mourning, a groan. We see in Lamentations five poems. Jeremiah writes these five poems shortly after the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon in 586 BC. Everything seems lost. The worst. Nightmare to every Israelite has been realized. In fact, if you're if you're it, uh, in the book of Jeremiah, I'm just going to read a few verses uh, throughout the book just to give you the context of of our text this morning. But. The temple and the city has been destroyed. Chapter 2, verse 7 says, The Lord has scorned His altar, disowned His sanctuary. He's delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. In other words, it sounds like a big party, but what is it? God is bringing judgment. The loudness the uproar of a celebration. However, it's not a good celebration. It is the people's demise. The temple and the city have been destroyed. Chapter 1, verse 2 says that tears are flowing. Verse 2 says she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks, talking about the city. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Not only are tears flowing, but the citizens have been exiled. Chapter one, verse three says, "Not only that, children, because of the siege around Jerusalem and the devastation, children are left are left starving in the streets." Chapter four, verse four. The tongue. This is uh, quite a word picture. Having an infant ourselves. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Are you getting the idea that this is a pretty bleak circumstance? But not only that, there's more. Not only are the, are the children the infants starving because of the siege and the devouring of the city. The adults are starving too. Guess what they did? Chapter four, verse 10. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Compassionate, gentle women that would not even want to dirty their hands in the soil, have resorted to eating their own children. Women, because of the, 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 the destruction of the city, women uh, at the hands of foreigners are being raped in the city. Chapter 5, verse 11, women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Not only that, but now slavery and torture is rampant as the soldiers uh, rush through the city. Chapter 5, verse 12, princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. Jeremiah wants to give us a picture of what is going on And what this does is it poses the question to us, is there any hope? Can life become so bad that hope is gone? Now we know the theological answer to that. But if you were like Jeremiah in the midst of this, how much hope do you think you would have? But then all of a sudden we see purposefully placed in the middle of the book of Lamentations is our passage this morning in verses 21 to 27. Right in the middle to be the focal point to this whole book When you have a picture, you have, what do you have? You have surrounding the picture, you have a a picture frame. But the picture frame does not serve the purpose of directing your attention to the frame. The picture frame encases what your eyes focus on, what is in the middle, the painting that has been painted. And that's exactly the purpose of verses 21 to 27 of Lamentations. It is placed in the middle of these five poems to direct our attention that, yes, even when life is as difficult as what we read in Lamentations, and it was because of the people's own sin that this happened, there is still hope. So this morning, we are going to look at three reasons why we can have hope in God for this new year. We as Christians can have hope in 2020. Let's say together, I can have hope in 2020. Let's say, ready? I can have hope in 2020. Let's pray. Lord, as we Come now to your word. Lord, we've kind of seen the the bleak, the treacherous, the, the horrendous circumstances in which our text was written. And Lord, to know that there is hope for the people of God, even amidst such circumstances. Father, I would dare say that none of us are going through things that are as bad as what we have read about. But Lord, that does not mean that we have not gone through very difficult circumstances, nor does it mean that maybe difficult circumstances are are on the horizon. But Lord, would we take the three key aspects that we see in verses 21 to 27 Would we take those and would we remember these, that these are the reasons we can have hope no matter what is going on around us, no matter what you are calling us to endure, no matter what you are calling us to go through. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's read verses 21 to 27 once again. In the midst of all of this difficulty, Jeremiah says in verse 21 But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So if Jeremiah, amidst all of this difficulty, remembers these things and it brings him hope, then boy, we better get these things firmly in our mind, right? What does he recall to mind? It's not his circumstances because he talked about those in verses 1 to 20. It's this, verse 22, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We're going to stop right there to give reason number one for hope the first reason we can have hope in an unknown future is because God's love is steadfast. God's love is steadfast. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You see, what we have to realize is His steadfast love, God's steadfast love defines who He is. God Himself does not just possess steadfast love he himself he is steadfast love he defines what steadfast love looks like what it is god is not like us that that we can have some love in our hearts we can have some patience we can have some kindness we can have some sense of justice in our hearts but there's a division there no god is completely all of these things and perfectly All of these things. God Himself is steadfast. His steadfast love defines who He is. You see, He's known. By this steadfast love. This this word steadfast love, it's actually one word in in, in the Hebrew, the word Hesed. it's, it's, It's such a wide range of meaning. There's such a wide range of meaning to this word, is that there's really no one word that can perfectly translate it. It could be translated faithfulness, it could be translated like in our text. In the ESV, steadfast love. It could be translated trustworthiness. It could be translated loyalty. All of these things are encompassed in this one single word. It's the same word that describes God's covenant love. His covenant commitment that he gives to his people. That we know God will not break his covenants. His promises. In fact, Moses on Mount Sinai says to the Lord, would you show me your glory? Would you help me to see you? God says, no man can see me and live, so I will pass by. I'll let you see my back, not my face. And as he's passing by to show Moses who he is, just a glimpse, a glimpse of his glory. This is what God says about himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. I mean, here's God's self-description. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, steadfast love and faithfulness, Keeping, there's the word again, steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God's self description, He is faithful. He is merciful. He is gracious. And as we see at the end of this passage, He is also just. God cannot overlook sin. But man, it sure is interesting, even in this verse, these two verses, we see God's character. He keeps steadfast love for what? For thousands. Compared to at the end of the passage, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children's children, Only to the third and fourth generation. God's steadfast, compassionate love defines him, it is who he is. You see, if we hold that God is kind of some type of killjoy, that God is some type of God that simply holds us out at an arm's distance, he, uh, he, he, He's not that concerned about our lives. He doesn't really care about us. And when He does, man, we're, we're so afraid that He's just going to stomp all over us that you don't know the right God that the Bible describes. God is known by His covenant, steadfast love. And not only that, but He reaches out to us with this steadfast love. You don't need to turn there, but just a few weeks ago, about a month ago, Pastor Dennis spent a couple weeks in Psalm 136. Do you remember that psalm where it keeps repeating the steadfast love of in, or his steadfast love endures forever? This is how the, the, God's people throughout the centuries have known God, by his steadfast love. That's why in Psalm 136, the psalmist gives us a whole retelling of the history of God's people in the context of this steadfast love. Verses 3 to 5, give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. All the way to the end of the psalm when it says, it is he who has remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever. He's rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. You see, without this steadfast love, God would not be able to relate in a relationship sort of way with man. Because we are anything but steadfast. The only way without this steadfast love where God reaches out to us in a relationship and draws us to himself, the only way without that that God can relate to us is with judgment. But God has looked at us and we are the recipients of his steadfast love. And not only that, but he never forsakes his steadfast love. The text says in verse 22 that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Never. If God's steadfast love would cease, he would be untrue to himself. He would be lying in what he said to Moses in Exodus 34. God would be a liar. God's Steadfast love never ceases. The idea here uh, of the word is to fail or to come up empty. One of the Christmas gifts for our kids, they got got some money to spend. And Isaac was out looking for a remote control car. And and with his amount of money, he obviously wasn't able to get a high quality one. So he was was looking uh, for a remote control car. And he was about to get one, and luckily we looked at the uh, description, and and it needed like four or six AA batteries in the car, and guess what it said? Batteries will last 30 minutes. And I was thinking, okay, so this car, there's a reason why you can afford the car, because you're not going to be able to afford the batteries. And many times we treat God like batteries. He's patient with us, he's faithful to us up to a certain point, but boy, we better either get new batteries by going to something else to find satisfaction, or we better somehow recharge the battery by doing enough good things to somehow earn God's favor once again. That's not the way God is. Never ceases means never ceases. Imagine that. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This steadfast love, it not only defines who God is, we know him because of his steadfast love, but this steadfast love characterizes his heart. Why does the steadfast love of the Lord never cease? The second part of verse 22 answers that. Because his mercies never come to an end. God is ever merciful. What is God's heart like? Do you want to know God's heart? God's heart is merciful. It is merciful to us. Because Jesus has taken the justice that was demanded for our sins. You see, apart from Jesus, we are under the full wrath of God's judgment for our sin. But because God, because Jesus bore all of that, we find the merciful faithful heart of god his mercies never come to an end he relentlessly pursues us as his children god never comes to the point if you are truly one of his children where he's like oh that's it's not worth it let him go Let him go. It's not worth it. God never comes to that point. Did you know that God doesn't get intimidated by your sin? That's not to say we have an excuse to sin. But it's to say that God never gets intimidated with it. Or, oh no, what am I going to do now? There have been points... Uh, up into our almost 12 years of parenting, can't believe it's already been almost 12 years, that we have wrung our hands and said, oh no, what are we going to do now? And I'm sure that only escalates. Uh, those of you, yes, yeah, some people are shaking their heads dogmatically. <laughs> but did you know that's not the case with God? God doesn't stiff arm us. Because of our sin, or give us the silent treatment, or anything like that. His mercies are never ending. He pursues us because his heart is merciful. That does not mean God overlooks sin. Who the Lord loves, he chastens. I mean, man, if we can go our own way and, and, and God never pursues us, it's, it, Hebrews 11 or Hebrews 12 tells us it's an indicator we are not truly one of his children. But God is merciful. And then verse 23, we see that this steadfast love, man, it constantly meets us in our need. And this is why this is so neat. Because we are a needy people. My temptation, your temptation, um, is that we have a tendency to help people up to a certain point, but man, sometimes it can become overwhelming because we just don't know what else to do. Did you know that God never encounters that? God's steadfast love constantly meets us in our own need. Look at verse twenty-three. This steadfast love, this mercy, it's new every morning. It never grows old. This is God's established pattern. In other words, what this text is saying is we experience God's mercy in a fresh, new way every morning. It's a limitless supply, and the experience of it is fresh, to meet us in our new circumstances or the same ones that we were already in. There's no plugging in and recharging. There is a fresh supply because it never runs dry. That's what this passage is saying. No matter what you may encounter tomorrow, the same steadfast love you experience today will be there. Is that the way you're living life? I don't know about you, but I can often stay awake at night looking at the ceiling, thinking of issues and problems and worries. But that is sin. That is not taking into account what Scripture says. I mean, who knows what a day brings, right? But with the unknown being wrapped in the known, we do know what a new day will bring, don't we? New day fresh mercy new fresh steadfast love so maybe as Christians we have been looking at things the wrong way we think negatively what is tomorrow going to bring looking at the unknowns but we should be saying we know regardless of what happens what tomorrow will bring God will be proving himself true then it says at the end of verse 23, great is your faithfulness. You see, God's established pattern, he brings us fresh mercies every day, and God's established character is that he has proven himself faithful. You see, we can only say this, great is your faithfulness, if we have been forced to rely on God's faithfulness. It's not the smooth seas that make the great captains, right? If you want to to, to have peace of mind when you're you're in the air on an airplane or when you're on a boat, the the more tempestuous seas and winds that the captain has experienced and gone through, uh, the more confidence you have in that captain. And it's the same way in life. The greater the difficulty the greater you experience the faithfulness of God. And that's just reality. We don't want to experience difficulty, but yet God lovingly allows us to in order to know, not just with my head, but with my heart, that God is faithful. So reason number one that we can have hope for 2020 is because God's love is steadfast. Reason number 2 that we can have hope is because we can know in our life that God is enough. Look at verse 24. Amidst all of this bad these bad things, Jeremiah says, "The Lord Is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. You see, when we realize that God is truly enough, it doesn't matter what else we have. It's not Jesus plus something else that brings peace, that brings hope, that brings satisfaction. It's simply Jesus himself. It's simply God himself. Then this reality becomes the statement of our soul. The Lord is my portion. It's so interesting that this word portion, it has the idea of of my allotment or my territory, my share, my inheritance, It's the same word that is used um, of, of the different land that was given to the children of Israel, for instance in Deuteronomy and Joshua, that they this tribe, it says, receive their portion. And what's interesting about that is that here we have a context in Lamentations that Jerusalem, it was destroyed. The inheritance, the earthly inheritance of God's people was now taken away. It was stripped from them. And you know what Jeremiah is saying? Ah, you know what? The big picture for God's people, it's not to cling to a parcel of land. It is to realize that God himself is our portion. That's what we forgot. And that's why we're in this mess. It's so easy as Christians to cling to things, to cling to concepts, to ideas, to cling to grades, to cling to relationships or a lack of relationships, to cling to all of these things and say, I need those things, then I could truly serve God because I would be content. Man, if that's what we're waiting for, we're just, we're never going to, be content. We're never going to be able to serve God. You see, in order to get to this point where we say the Lord is my portion, we, we have to, first of all, be willing to relinquish all. And that's a tall order. Jesus himself said, if any man is to come after me, let him, let him uh, take up his cross daily, deny himself, and follow me. You see, God's formula is addition through subtraction. You see, God takes away so that we can truly have more. It's not just accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. No, it's addition by means of subtraction. As God chisels away things in our life, whether they be material, whether they be character, whether they be uh, uh, sin, whatever it is, as God chisels those things away, He gives us more, not in giving us more things, but in giving us more of Himself. It's easy how quickly those things we're striving for every day mean nothing. Um, for instance, during the Christmas season, when or we're entering the Christmas season when Rachel had her health difficulties, it's amazing that all of the concerns of, of, of this and that and that were stripped away because those things didn't really matter. It's like, uh-oh, we've got to deal with Rachel's health. What's going on? Because all of those things truly didn't matter in the end. Whether it's, uh uh-oh, this in the house needs to get fixed, or, uh uh-oh, the kids need to go here for an appointment, or we need to go Christmas shopping. In fact, some of those things seem foolish to even be a concern when a greater reality appears. How many of us are in danger at Christ's coming to say, oh my goodness, I have been so concerned with these idiotic things that I missed the whole picture. I missed what's truly important. You see, we must be willing to relinquish everything because we know that God is enough. Secondly, we find that for this statement of the soul to be true that God is enough, we will experience that in losing we find. In losing we find more than we've ever lost. Those of you who have lost uh, a loved one or or have family that have lost loved ones and and they're walking with the Lord, they have found that the, their relationship with the Lord is so much stronger. I'll never forget my grandmother uh, would always tell us how much she would continually be praying for us because her relationship with the Lord strengthened so much because the Lord was all she had. And I think sometimes we have so much stuff that it drowns out the power of God in our lives. We, have, we are so busy, our schedules are jam-packed, do this at 11, do this at 4, be over here at 6, be over here at 8, and we've forgotten the whole purpose of why we are here on this earth. The Lord is my portion. You see, in losing we find, because number three, in all things, Our aim is to be Christ. That's why Paul says for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, Paul says if I die in this prison cell, man, I'm going to be with the Lord. That means I experience Christ in a greater way. And if if God wants me to live and I walk out of this prison cell, man, my purpose is going to be Christ. That means He has given me more time to serve Him and to have a relationship with Him here on this earth. Whether I die or live, it is all about Christ. When we come to the point, when God brings us to the point that we can say, verse 24, the Lord is my portion. Then and only then will the end of verse 24 be true. Therefore, I will hope in him. You see, when when God is enough, we find the satisfaction of the soul. We are most content when he alone is our hope. Not only that, but we are most ourselves when he alone is our help our true selves, what we were were created to be. As the famous saying goes, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. But then thirdly and quickly, as our time is quickly coming to an end, we can have hope in 2020, not only because God's love is steadfast, not only because God is enough, But thirdly, God is good. God is good. There are no doubt many this morning that would have difficulty saying that. God is good. In fact, I think when we all go through difficulties and we are wondering what's going on, it's very difficult for all of us to say, God is good. But this reality is more than a feeling. This reality is more than just a thought. It's truth. Let's read verses 25 to 27 together. Or uh, uh, let me read that uh, all at once and you just follow along. It says The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. God is good. Here are three things or implications that come from God being good. If God is good, if he's truly good, then this text tells us that we can wait. We can wait. We can wait Because God is good. The Lord is good, verse 25, to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. You see, God being good gives us the incentive to wait. We wait for God's good to be revealed. And God's good is not Uh, is not usually simply revealed in better circumstances, though God gives us so many more good circumstances than we deserve living in a broken world. In fact, I was reading uh, this past week, made me start thinking about a coming sermon series that would be good in the book of Ecclesiastes. uh, This individual said, um, the book of Ecclesiastes, it really shows us How broken this world really is. And the question when you really ponder Ecclesiastes is not, man, why did this bad thing happen to me? Uh, It's really the thing we should ask ourselves is, man, it's an act of God's grace that more bad things don't happen to us than than really do. Because we're in this sin-cursed, broken world. But we wait for God's good to be revealed. Inherent in this sense of good is for God's will and His purposes to be revealed. You see, God is doing something within us. It is a good work. It is not a work to run away from. It is not a work to become bitter over. It is not a work to fear. God is doing good in our hearts. And God's good will be revealed according to his time, according to his will, according to his purpose. So if God is good, if we truly claim that, we can therefore wait. Secondly, if God is good, then we can therefore wait quietly. Verse 26, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. You see, waiting doesn't mean just sitting there and doing nothing. Okay, God, when are you going to work? Or, okay, God, what are you trying to accomplish through this? Let me know when you want to reveal it. No, it has the idea of actively pursuing that which, which God would have us pursue and letting God figure out the details in his timing. It is a walk of faith. You see, so many times, as opposed to walking quietly or waiting quietly, we're very much like the children of Israel in the wilderness, aren't we? Complaining, stressed out, bitter, mumbling to ourselves. We really can't give them that bad a rap because I know I do that. Okay, God just answered this huge prayer, but tomorrow brings another huge burden, and man, I'm right back to where I was before. But we can wait quietly. In other words, a waiting of trust. It's a stillness of heart, it's a lack of complaining. It's a stillness that is evidenced in hope and trust. But here's the thing. If we want to truly have hope, like what verses 21 to 27 are saying, if we truly want to know that God is a God of steadfast love, that God really is enough for us, that God really is good. It's not just a light that you can turn on. Wouldn't it be easy? We're always looking for easy steps. I mean, it's the new year, we're thinking of dieting and exercising. Remember Matt said none of those things ever last, so don't even try. So. <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice if those things were just light switches that boom, I, Rachel sometimes accuses of this, you know, she's dieting for a week and I'm like, you know, I got to lose some weight and in one day, you know, I can shed a couple pounds and she gets mad at me, but it would be nice if life was like that, but it's not. If we want to truly experience God, who he is, what he is like, we have to be willing to walk down the path with him. Let me illustrate it this way. I came across this uh, a year or two ago, and it, I jotted it down. It stuck out to me so much. This, was, this is an individual's personal testimony. He wrote, an older Christian in my life had more peace than me about a hard situation today. I said, quote, you have more faith than me. He responded, and get this, no, I have more experience with a faithful God. Then he goes on and says, I'll never forget that. You see, if you look at an individual and they are trusting in God through difficulty, through good time, whatever it is, that is not something to say, man, what's wrong with me? That I'm not like that. It's, it, it, is, it is a lesson that you know what? if I look to the Lord to be my sufficiency, to say he is enough, I'm going to trust in his steadfast love, I'm going to trust that he is good, and I am going to walk and wait quietly, let God be my confidence, then God will show himself true, and experientially you will now have more experience with a faithful God. Don't try to take a shortcut spiritually. You don't become some type of super Christian ever, but you also don't take leaps and bounds just out of the clear blue. It is a day-by-day walk with the Lord. Same way with knowing the Bible. You get confused. You say, I don't understand anything in Scripture. It's not a light switch that suddenly comes on. It's patiently studying scripture, asking questions, praying piece by piece by piece, and God shows himself true to you. That's the Christian life. Not a lot of glitz, not a lot of glamour, but in the end, you experience God himself. Isn't that a lofty goal for 2020? Let us be faithful to the Lord. He alone is our hope. Let's pray.